Um, but today we're looking at a passage following on from last week in 1 Corinthians, and it's a heavy one on sexual immorality. And to start this talk, I wanted to start with a confession. And I talked about this with my wife beforehand, and we considered the biblical principle that it is better to speak the truth in love than not. And so I wanted to confess something. I hate musicals. I, I don't know why. I just can't get into them. And I know this might put some of you off, and we may not be friends after this morning. But I don't know what it is. The, the one thing I guess that really gets to me is I can't take the speaky, singy bit. When they're talking to each other, and you just people just talk, but instead they're singing. And I get it, it's hyper real, it's a genre, all that kind of stuff. But I don't know, I just, I just can't get amongst it. And so a few months ago, I did something really servant hearted as a husband. It was, uh, it was watching a movie together, and I chose the movie. And for the sake of my wife, I chose La La Land, which is a musical. And, um, and look, it's not that servant-hearted because the last ten before that were all like Marvel flicks or something like that. So it was time for me to take a bullet. Um, but as, as we were kind of loading it up, I, I confess I was not looking forward to it. It was a bit like having a bowl of wheat bix I was just thinking, look, it's good to do, but it's, you know, if I had the choice, I'd probably get something better. Anyway, so look, when we, we started the flick, and the second confession I have to make is this, that I actually started to get into it. And really, and even when they were making jokes, I was kind of smothering my laughter, like not to, not to show that I was actually getting that into it. But as the story kicked on, I did, I, I really started to get into it. I enjoyed the flick. And the story, if you don't know it, is about two people who meet in L.A., and they're both in Hollywood chasing their dreams. One is kind of a jazz pianist who wants to see jazz kind of return to its rightful place on the cultural throne. And the other person is a struggling actress who would love ultimately to write, direct and star in her own performances. So they're both in Hollywood chasing their dreams, trying to make it happen. And they meet together and they fall in love. And it's an endearing kind of love story as they come together. But without, um, without spoiling it, and I promise I won't, there is a policy I won't spoil any movies up front if they're within the last five years. Outside of that, it's your fault, you should have seen it by then. But this one is one. So without spoiling it, most people feel funny about the ending. And it's because the ending doesn't end with an answer like you're used to Hollywood films doing. It ends with a question. And I think, I think if I saw it right, I think the question the movie is asking is this. Given that you can't have both, where will you find real happiness? Is it in romantic love or is it it in personal independent fulfillment, chasing my own dreams? Given that you can't have both, where will I find most happiness? Is it chasing my own is it sorry, romantic fulfillment or chasing my own dreams and desires? And I think the movie's not quite sure. And it leaves people feeling not quite sure. See, this is our culture, and this is the thing that our culture is wrestling with at the moment, isn't it? The truth is that you would say that God has died in our culture. And by that, I mean that we're a secular culture. The word secular comes from the French word seculum, which means like age or generation. And it's the idea, a secular worldview is the idea that everything, all meaning, all happiness that is to be found is to be found in this age or this generation or this lifetime now. There's nothing either side of that. There's no great transcendent reality. And so happiness is to be found here and now. And after people had given up culturally really as a whole on the idea that I'd find any happiness or meaning in God, we thought the next logical one was 
romance, right? I will find meaning and happiness once I find that right person to settle down with. But after decades of disappointing relationships and breakdown and family breakdown and divorce, there is a shift and a fork in the road. And the question being asked is, well, given that that's failed so many times, maybe happiness is found in being my own person, in being an individual, in pursuing my hopes and dreams as far as I possibly can. Now, the romance maybe has died. We're looking to autonomy. And today, as we look at this passage, the gospel will come to bear on sex and sexuality. And the mistake that you might make is to think that the major clash point is that the Bible has a bunch of antiquated sort of, you know, funny ideals about how men and women should be together in a relationship. And it's nice and it's sentimental, but it's outdated. And that that's the major clash, but it's not. The major clash goes a lot deeper than that. The major clash is over autonomy. Who ultimately decides what I do with my body, my life, and my pursuit of happiness? The clash ultimately, or the question ultimately, is where will I find happiness? In self-determination or in Christ? And the battleground, in this passage at least, is, is around sex. But really, the deeper clash is where will I find happiness? In self-determination or in Christ? And so I'm going to pray that as we read this, that God would focus our hearts and minds on His Word, that we might see what He is speaking to us through 1 Corinthians. Let's pray. Father God, we praise You that You are good, that You are the author of all, that You created us in love, that You have made us for relationship with You. And as we consider how it is that we should use and enjoy our sexuality, we pray that we would know that you are the one who has answers. That as we study your word, you would show us what it is that we are meant to be like and what you are calling us to, that, we, that you might be glorified in your church. And we pray this for the glory of your name alone. Amen. Well, we are moving through this letter of 1 Corinthians, written by the Apostle Paul, who was someone who hated Jesus, hated the church, killed Christians, then he understood who Jesus was, was confronted by Jesus personally, turned his life around, and instead of killing Christians, he is now threatened with being killed for being a Christian. And Paul, as I mentioned last week, after he heard the gospel, was saved, he moved north of Jerusalem, north of Israel, through Syria and that area, through Turkey, through Macedonia and down to Greece, just planting churches along the way, preaching the gospel, seeing people saved, creating churches, and then moving on. And eventually he made it down to this city called Corinth. And as I've mentioned, Corinth was a wealthy city and a sexually permissive city. It was known for this. In Corinth, in the mount just nearby it, was the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And in its golden age, it had over a thousand temple prostitutes. And so what would happen is that people would go up there and visit the temple prostitutes but during the weekdays or at other times, they would descend on the town and prostitution became their trade. So it became a city known for this. Now, by the time Paul reached this city, the Temple of Aphrodite was already in ruins, but that culture and that economy of prostitution had continued. And Corinth was a city that had a reputation for two things, being rich and being morally loose. If in the ancient world you called someone a Corinthian girl it was tantamount to calling her either a prostitute or at the very least promiscuous. That was the reputation of Corinth. There was a phrase in the ancient world that said, 
not every man can afford a journey to Corinth. Because the idea was that morally and financially, it was pretty costly to go to Corinth. It was a town that catered to sailors. And wherever sailors were in the ancient world, bad things happened. Mostly because in the ancient world, sex before contraception was associated with having babies. And so if you slept with someone, you knew that there were going to be consequences for this. But if you're a sailor, there wasn't. They would go to a town, they would do what they did, and they would leave. And because of that, towns that catered to sailors were likely to have prostitution as a major industry. So Corinth was a loose town. And as we saw last week, Paul says to them, hey, there's an issue of sexual immorality that even the people around you are shocked at. Right? And he's saying, in Corinth, that's a big deal. He's like, if you've, you've gone 11 out of 10. If you're shocking Corinthians, something is going on that's major. And they had to deal with it. But here, Paul continues on. And he takes almost what seems like a weird left turn. Last week we talked about an issue of a man who was sleeping with his mother-in-law. Paul says you've got to deal with it. You've got to deal with that guy and that sin and do it properly. And then we get this. In 1 Corinthians 6.1, he starts on this. He says in 1 Corinthians 6, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the, uh, before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. What has this got to do with anything? He's talking on major issues of sexual immorality and then all of a sudden he takes his left turn into these lawsuits that are going on. Well, the issue last week with the man who's sleeping with his mother-in-law was that it was affecting the reputation of the church in that city. It was so well known that even people around them knew what was going on and the heartbreak that was going on and the sin and it wasn't being dealt with. And so now he moves on to another thing that's going on in the city. People know that this church are suing one another over trivial matters and they're doing it in front of the, the, the people around them. He says the, the reputation of the church is on the, on the line. He's saying this is not how the people of God should be acting. He's saying you're bringing trivial crimes before one another. I mean, sorry, trivial issues before one another. These aren't major matters. He's not saying if there were issues of abuse or of major violence or things like that. He's not talking about that. He's saying these are trivial cases. He's saying to them, look, you guys are set at the end of days to judge the world. You can't even sort out these little disputes. Instead, you're going outside the church to deal with them in front of other people so they can look in and say, oh, look how petty the people of Jesus are. It's like another show that I love, also pretty highbrow, Judge Judy. <laughs> a, great, a great afternoon television. I wish I was home to actually see it these days. But um, the, the premise of the show, if you're not familiar with it, is that people who have humiliatingly trivial disputes get, I guess, their law fees wavered, their court fees wavered in order to humiliate themselves publicly on TV. That's, that's the deal. Um, 
Yay, capitalism. Um, but um, what happens is Judge Judy, who, who is a gun, can, just, can sort out trivial matters. She's basically like a primary school teacher of a, of a whole area of adults. And people come before her and they'll say things like, 20 years ago, my ex borrowed my toaster and never gave it back, and now I want a million dollars in compensation. And she'll be like, that's ridiculous, you get nothing, get out of here, right? And that's, that's how most of the cases roll through. But the one after the other are just, they're trivial things. And this is obviously why they're allowed to be televised. These aren't major crimes, they're not major issues. These are just trivial, bickering, bitter, kind of acrimonious matters. And Paul is saying, this is the kind of stuff that's going on. This isn't major crime stuff. Paul affirms that the law is good, that governance is good, that you need that. But he's saying these are, these are tiny issues. These are minor disputes, and you're, you're laying them out in front of people who don't know Jesus yet, and you're trying to witness to them, and yet they're saying, look how trivial these people are. He says the world is watching the reputation of the church is at stake. You're meant to be a people who know the love of Jesus and love one another, and yet you're doing this. It's ridiculous. So last week he said, look, deal with this major sin issue. And this week he's saying, deal with these kind of trivial lawsuits. But then he goes back to the area of sexual immorality and goes deeper on it. Because there's a deeper issue going on here. And so in 1 Corinthians 6, sentence 9, he starts on this concern as he returns to the theme of sexual ethics. He says this, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul is clear that to follow Christ means change. It means changing. It means you were one way, you met Jesus, and now you live a different way completely. Paul says the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, and then he catalogues it. He says the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. In short, he's just saying everyone. And we know from his other letter in Romans that he does mean everyone. There is no one righteous, not even one. And then he says there's a change. He says these people won't inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says, but. And what follows? He says, this is, you know, you were swindlers, adulterers, all these sort of things. And he says, but what? But you changed, you changed completely. You got yourself together. You got a life coach and pulled your life together completely and changed 100%. And now you're the church. Now he says, but you were washed. That's a passive verb for you word nerds. It says, you were washed. That wasn't something that you did. That was something that was done to you. That is, when you met Jesus, you didn't make a good, wise choice. You didn't turn your life around. He invaded your life. It says, you were washed, sanctified, justified. You were made holy. You were made righteous by His blood. Paul says, the basis for a changed life is not what you have done but what Christ has done to you and for you. The basis for a changed life is not what you have done but what Christ has done to you and for you. Earlier this week 
I was talking to a man at a, at a wedding, and um, I've been to a few weddings in my day, and so you get practiced at small talk, and he's a Qantas engineer. I'm like, well, this will be a challenge. And so being great at small talk, I, I said, this is all I had. I was like, what, Qantas, got a great safety record, don't they? But he took it and ran with it. I was like, great. <laughs> and, uh, and, then, and we kind of got talking on Qantas's great safety record, and then, and then he said something, that, sorry, I mean the rest of the conversation was interesting, I don't mean to make it sound like this was the only interesting bit, but he did say something interesting at this point. Because so, I, I was asking on this a bit more, I was like, why, why is it that Qantas have like, these A1 sort of safety standards? And he said, because we have a no-blame policy. I was like, what, what exactly does that mean? And it works like this, he was saying, for other, um, for other countries that have a worse safety record, I won't say who he mentioned, it's America, and he said, um, for, other, for other countries, the way they run it is that you, um, you, you, basically your job falls on you. So if you make a mistake, you're the one who's going to be fired. But he says, at, at Qantas, the way they do it is, there's a, a no-blame policy. So if you own up to a, a mistake, they guarantee you will not be fired. And because of that, mistakes all get reported and they all get dealt with before the plane takes off. And it was interesting because I, I was, intuitively I thought, if your job was on the line, that would be when you'd do a good job, right? If you knew that me being hired or fired was based on my performance, that you would do a better job. That would be high accountability, right? And if you dropped the accountability and said, look, no matter what mistake you do, we won't fire you, that it would lead to lazy performance. And yet it's the opposite. And you're saying this is what happens. When people think their job is on the line, if they make a mistake, they're likely to hide it. And they won't own up to it, and they won't confess it, and then that's when things get worse and worse, and then you finally have some kind of critical issue. But he's saying when you say there's a no-blame policy, everyone just always fesses up to things, and issues get dealt with at the right time before they're critical. I thought that's interesting, because really that's grace, isn't it? See, it, the case is that the grace leads to greater ownership and change, and Paul is saying if you get the gospel and you get grace, it leads to change. When you realize that you are already washed, are already justified, are already made clean, you are free to fess up to sin and to change, to be transformed, to be like, I don't want to be like that, I don't want to be like the way I was. Jesus transformed me completely. See, if you were working at Qantas and you had a guy who was constantly covering his mistakes, what would you say to him? You'd be like, look, you don't understand how this works. We don't want people to die in an air crash just fess up to stuff. You're not even going to be fired. Why are you covering over all this stuff? If they were doing that, you'd be like, you don't really get it. And Paul is saying the same for Christians. He's saying, look, if you're still involved in sexual immorality, it's like, you, you don't get it. You don't get what's happened. You don't get the gospel. You've been washed. You've been set free. You're set free from that sin, so you don't have to live for it anymore. Why are you doing that? And he goes on to explain it like this. In Corinthians 6, 12 and onwards, he says... All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. The quotation marks there indicate that it's probably the case that Paul is quoting the Corinthians. That this is something that they were saying. And they were saying, all things are lawful for me. They're saying, this is how the gospel works. Jesus died for me, now I kind of do whatever I want. And Paul says, not all things are helpful. 
And more than that, he says, you know, all things are lawful for me. He says, but I won't be dominated by anything. Paul is saying, when it comes to sex, you don't want to go back to the old slavery of sin. He says, not all things are helpful. Jesus saved you and set you free so that you won't go back to that slavery. And then he quotes them again, or a phrase that seemed to be around at the time, and it's this. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And it seems like what's happening here is that this phrase in regards to sex is the idea that sex is just one of many biological urges. I'm hungry, I eat, I'm thirsty, I drink, I feel like having sex, I have sex. And it's this idea that sex or sexuality has been demoted to just a physical urge. That that's all it is. It's a physical urge to be gratified or suppressed, but nothing more. And I think this is largely how our culture views sex. Whether consistently or not, it is very present in our culture that sex is treated as just another biological urge. I heard that in, um, in the, the movie, doco thing, That Sugar Film, they talk about how much sugar is in everything. And, um, and as people, a few people have been you know, doing the no sugar diet, you start to realize how much sugar is just a part of everything. Right? Stuff that you thought was like, it's in bread, it's in chips, it's in all this stuff. But apparently in the film, they talk about this thing called a bliss point. And the idea is when they're testing foods, um, they'll put sugar in them because obviously people will want them more and that sort of thing. But there's a bliss point where people kind of enjoy the food, but it's not too sweet. So they'll create like a, a tomato sauce or something, which again is stacked full of sugar, and they'll try it out on people. And when people say, well, that's a bit sweet, they'll just pull it back a bit until they hit the bliss point. And, um, and increasingly, our culture has a higher and higher tolerance of when it is that we can actually taste sugar. And so the bliss point is getting higher and higher and higher because sugar is just in everything, right? Now, why do I mention that? Because that's how sex is treated in our culture. It's a part of everything. It's used to sell everything from cars to stationery. It's a part of everything. It's a part of all narratives and TV and advertising, and it's on constantly. I remember reading an article last year from a Christian magazine talking about the demise, demise of Playboy. That last year, Playboy decided that they would no longer show or no longer depict nude women in their magazine. And some people thought this was a victory, but for this Christian author, he said it's not, it's a complete defeat. He said the truth of it is this, that the reason Playboy is no longer showing nudes is because they cannot compete in the market they helped create. That Playboy was not able to keep up with the demand for volume and for the graphic nature of modern pornography, and so they were outcompeted in the industry that they started. That they were now too softcore for the industry that they helped create. They assisted in their own suicide, and so he said, this isn't a victory at all. It's a sign that things have moved very, very quickly, even too fast for Playboy. Now, we know the porn is bad. I don't say we is in the church. I mean, culturally, the research is there, that it objectifies women and men, that it makes people less sympathetic to victims of sexual assault, that it undermines marriages, that the sex industry is riddled with men and women who, are, who have been abused or have been the victims of sexual abuse. We know that the suicide rates in the sex industry are the highest of any industry. And yet, our culture is stuck. Because one of the biggest debates around pornography is, is it good or bad for women? 
One of the biggest issues and women's issues concerning this is, is it empowering or disempowering? Because we believe that life is about everything is mine, my body, people are saying, well, is it good because it's a woman using her body and her sexually how she pleases, not being told to do anything by anyone? Or is it bad because it objectifies and ruins relationships between men and women? And we're stuck because we believe that ultimate life and happiness will be found when I take complete control of my life. But Paul says Jesus is not confused about it and speaks real clarity into it. Look what he says in 1 Corinthians 6, 14 to 20. It says, And God raised the Lord as he will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sin a person commits is outside his body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Jesus, uh, Paul says if you follow Jesus, you belong to him now. You belong to him. So it's not up to you as to what your opinion is about what sexuality is or where happiness is to, find, to be found. If you say, Jesus is my king, who died for me, who bled for me, who rose again, who gave me the power of new life, then you say what he says about sexuality, about my body, is right. And here, Paul is saying that according to Scripture, sex is not just a biological urge, that it's the mingling of two souls. It says the two will become one flesh. This is picking up on Genesis and the language that when, when there's a marriage, it's a union of two people in a profound way and that sex is a profound part of that union. That it's meant to join two people together irreversibly, two living souls. You might be sitting here if you are skeptical about who Jesus is, thinking like, this is exactly the kind of antiquated stuff I expect from Jesus. But I ask you this question. What interpretation better explains what we see around us and have experienced ourselves? The idea that sex is just a biological urge or that it really is the mingling of two souls? Which of those explains it better? Culture wrestles with this in one way. There is one of those classic demographic mining movies which is about can friends have sex, right? Every year there's another one. It's just with whoever's hot right now. And, uh, and they replace them year after year. It's as predictable as the Bucks Party Hens Night movies. They just keep churning them out. They can't do sequels because everything plays out in the one movie, so they just rename it and, uh, and put new actors in it. But every time the question is this, can you be friends and have sex? Does it work out? And they land in various points or in various directions, but the, the conundrum is always there. I remember years ago there was one movie engaging with this particular topic, and, uh, and there's a man who's been sleeping with a girl just casually. He thinks they're friends. He thinks she's cool with it. And she starts to lose her mind. And before doing something pretty dangerous and threatening, she says to him, don't you realize that even though when you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise even if you don't? See, I learned this idea that sex isn't just a casual thing. That even if you don't make a promise or even if you treat it that way, 
the consequences are ongoing. That it is something more. And that's our experience. You can't pretend that sex is just another appetite. It's not. We know it. That's why once a relationship turns sexual, it's not easy just to leave it behind. And couples who hate one another just keep breaking up and getting back together and breaking up and getting back together. That's why casual sex leaves us feeling so empty and used. It's like drinking salt water. No matter how much more we have of it, we are not satisfied. It becomes both, both the cause and the cure of all our problems. It's not nothing. When we say sex is nothing, we, pre- we pretend in the face of overwhelming evidence that that's the case. It's not nothing. The Bible is right. It's a fusion of two souls. And it's not ours to do with what we please. But if Jesus is Lord of all, then he is the one who is Lord of our bodies and our sexuality. It says here, you were bought with a price, with the precious blood of Jesus. And the language here is picking up on the ancient language of slavery. When Paul says, you were bought with a price, he's using slave market language. And he's saying, it's as though you're on the markets in, in slavery, in chains, and Christ has come in and paid the price that it cost to get you off, which was his blood. You were washed, sanctified, made new, set free. A number of years ago, Mel and I, were, uh, it was on our anniversary, and we, um, we, just, we decided to watch another movie. And uh, I made the choice this time. And, um, and, you know, anniversary is meant to be a romantic time. I thought I wanted to watch a really good movie. And so we watched Ten Years a Slave. Have you seen that? That is so dark, right? That is a... That is a yeah. I mean, it is a harrowing movie to watch, right? So needless to say, that stood out as one of the worst choices I've made for anniversaries for all time, but that's all right. But um, if you watch the story, it is compelling. It's like it's heartbreaking, it's terrifying to watch, and it's, it's probably most frightening because it was reality. It actually happened. But the story is that a man, an African-American man, who was free in the North, gets kidnapped, transported to the south, and treated as a slave for 10 years. And there are so many close calls throughout the movie through which he almost gets free, where someone almost recognizes him and is able to pull him out of slavery and can't do it. And you are longing the whole movie for him to be free. And so, five-year limit, spoiler coming, um, when he does get free, it's just this relief. You think, finally, justice is done. I mean, imagine at that moment, if after being freed, after 10 years being a slave, he was like, no thank you. I think I'll head back. Actually, it w- you know what, I exaggerated it. it. It really wasn't that bad. I mean, you'd be, you'd be devastated or shocked, right? Because once a slave is free, why would you go back to slavery? Paul is saying the same thing about sexual immorality. He's saying, Jesus died for your sins to set you free. You were washed, you were sanctified. Why would you go back to it? You've been redeemed, you've been bought with a price. You've gone from a, a, a slave master to your king and creator who made you and loved you. Why would you go back? The desire for holiness is the desire for freedom. And Paul is calling this Corinthian church to that, saying, look, you're swimming in a culture that treats sex the other way, but stand out. Know the truth of God and follow him. So here's the question. If you are here and a follower of Jesus, do you live this out? If you belong to Christ and belonging to him and following him means complete freedom, do you hear the command that he says here, flee from sexual immorality? 
flee from it. If this word is true, then God has set us free from the penalty of sin. That's the language around you are washed, you are justified, you are sanctified, right? The penalty of sin is dealt with. The penalty for sin is hell forever under the judgment of God. Jesus faced that for you, it's done. But now, through his Holy Spirit, he's teaching you to come out from under the power of sin as well. So that before that final day when we'll stand before God and he'll declare us innocent, before then, we'll start to experience his lordship in our life as he redeems us from sin. And so he says, flee from sexual immorality. Flee to freedom from sexual immorality. But you know what I reckon most Christians do with sin, and particularly sexual sin? Is they don't flee it, and they don't not flee it, and then they just kind of cut a deal with it. Let me explain what I mean. Uh, in, uh, sort of in the 30s, in the lead up to World War II, uh, the world leaders around Hitler really underestimated how badly Hitler wanted war. Because everyone was reeling from World War I, people generally assumed that nobody wants another world war, and they underestimated how much Hitler really did. That he was one person who, who thought of World War I, except for the defeat of Germany, as a glorious thing. And he saw Germany's right place as needing to be restored, and so he wanted it at any cost. And not only did he envision war, but he anticipated and provoked it. But in the lead up to World War II, as he did things like annex Austria and invade Czechoslovakia, whatever it was called at the time, I can't remember, um, but uh, as he did these things, there were key moments where the nations around were almost at the point of declaring war on Germany, and they shrunk back. And most historians agree that if they had, if they had invaded at that point, if they had declared war at that point and actually acted on it, Germany wouldn't have been equipped to wage intercontinental warfare. They're actually, they actually would have been able to, to prevent World War II before it had happened. And yet they continued to cut deals with it because they underestimated how badly he wanted war. They thought, look, if we just pull back from this, he'll pull back as well. He'll stop. He'll stop the madness. I think Christians underestimate sexual sin. And so they cut deals with it. And so instead of just cutting out and fleeing from it completely, we just say, look, maybe just this far. I'll just kind of, I'll get used to sexual sin at at this kind of level in my life. I can't cut it out completely. I don't want to wage war against it fully, but just so long as it doesn't break past this boundary or barrier. And I underestimate. If that is the case for you, have you cut a deal with sexual sin? With the struggle with pornography? They're like, look, I don't look at out-and-out porn, but you know, if it happens to be a part of a TV series or something that I'm watching, that's, that's kind of fine at that point. Is that you're like, look, I know I can't cut it out completely, but I think just this kind of level would be fine. Paul says, don't. Flee from sexual immorality. Christ has set you free to continue to fight and to wage war. If it's the case that you're dating, do you flee from sexual immorality? Sexual immorality means any sexual behavior outside of marriage. That God has created a good plan for men and women and for the covenant of marriage to be the place, the safe place, the committed relationship in which sexual relationship is to happen. So that means outside of that, any sexual activity is sin. Is that how you treat it or have you kind of cut a deal? Because no sexual immorality means nothing. 
means you treat them like your brother or sister. That means that anything that would be inappropriate with your brother or sister would be there, even kissing. And for many Christians, I think we're just like, look, being pragmatic, that's not going to happen. So maybe we'll just cut a deal with it and we'll just say, these kind of things are okay so long as we don't do this. Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. Christ has set you free for a greater reality than that and a greater freedom than that. Cause us to flee and flee completely. If you are married and you feel like those things are long behind you, it's been a long time since struggling with you know, young people's sin, like of, sin of, um, of sexual immorality, of pornography, of those sort of things. Have you repented of, of the behaviors or the patterns or the views of sex that you had that need to change? Does the way that you view sex now, if you're married in a couple, is it in line with Scripture? Or do you see it as just another biological urge? We're called to flee from sexual immorality completely. And if you are here and weighed down with guilt and weighed down by the burden of it, don't forget what he says here. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were cleansed. You have been bought at a price with the blood of Jesus. You were made completely new, no matter who you are or what you have done or what has been done to you. You were washed and made clean and new. And so I want to finish uh, with, this, with a hymn that I think speaks to this and to the struggle with Christians to live out the freedom that we have in Jesus. Not, it's not a poem, as some might expect, but it's called, it's a hymn, thank you, it's a hymn called Love Constraining to Obedience. That's, that's how you name a Christian song. Is it? That's got more theology than most Christian albums these days, right? <laughs> Love Constraining to Obedience, written by William Cooper. And he says this, How long beneath the law I lay in bondage and distress. I toiled the precept to obey, but toiled without success. Then to abstain from outward sin was more than I could do. Now if I feel its power within, I feel I hate it too. Then all my futile works were done, a righteousness to raise. Now freely chosen in the Son, I freely choose His ways. To see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear His pardoning voice, changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. Let's pray that that would be true of our lives. Father God, we praise you for the truth of the gospel, that we have been set free, that in Christ we are a new creation, that you have made us new completely, that we were washed, sanctified, justified, bought with the price of Jesus' blood. And Father, we pray that we would know this truth and live it out, that we'd remember that we have been set free, that we'd be able to live it out knowing that until the day that you return, we will continue to struggle with sin. And so we pray, Father, that you would lead us to love you and to live for you in all joy and forgiveness. And we pray this for the glory of your name. Amen.